Welcome to the Strive Podcast, where we embark on a captivating journey through the fascinating realms of mind, medicine, and motivation. I'm Simon Nim, host of the Strive Podcast, and I'm thrilled to have you join me on my conversation with Dr. Richard C. Wender. Dr. Wender is a leading figure renowned for his dedication to holistic care and advocating for underserved communities. As chair of the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at Penn Medicine, his vision for patient-centered, equitable healthcare extends beyond the clinic walls shaping the landscape of healthcare delivery for all. Throughout our conversation, we will delve into the intricate workings of motivation, explore the challenges and triumphs of primary care in underserved communities, and discuss the critical role of patient empowerment and community engagement in achieving health equity. We will also delve into Dr. Wender's personal journey, his insights on navigating the ever-evolving landscape of healthcare, and his vision for a future where healthcare is accessible, equitable, and truly holistic. Hi, Dr. Wender. Hey, Fi. Thanks thank, for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I think as I go through my rotations, I realize the true value of and ubiquity of primary care in affecting patient care across the spectrum. And so I'm really excited to delve into the conversation with you and discuss problems and the field of family care and how we can address uh, certain healthcare equities and improve patient outcomes for all. Terrific. So but those things resonate with me too. Definitely. So just to start off, what has your journey been thus far to get to where you are today? Well, uh, thanks for asking that. It's interesting, you know, as you're going through your journey, you don't know it's a journey. You just think you're taking it step by step. And I, I responding to what you're you're experiencing at the moment, you look back and you can draw a picture. You say, okay, that was that was a journey. You know, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My both my parents were educated. My dad was a very well-known organic chemist and you know, had a very accomplished career. Died when he was 101 years old. So uh, lived a long life, worked till he was 93. And uh, so, you know, I'm well aware of how fortunate I was. We often use the word privilege, and I think it is a good word, where I grew up. And, and I think I knew it at the time. I might not have named it the same way, but I, I could see that the fact that it was just expected I would go to college, I, I was never a doubt about that that I could literally in high school say, you know, maybe I want to be a doctor and have every reason to think I could do that was very important to me. So I'd say those form the the roots of that journey was was starting there. And the rest was, was following a pretty straight path, actually, to, to medical school. And a big part of that was meeting a woman named Diane, probably would have said a girl at the time, in 10th grade in high school. And we've been now married for 48 years. So there, there is no Rich Wender journey without Diane with me. That's beautiful. And just to talk about, you know, like the specific journey that you've had and how that has influenced you as a healthcare provider, could you provide some more perspective on how that's shaped your approach to patient care? Yes. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I've often asked myself, why is it with, that in my life, it was so evident that if you had the opportunity to make a difference in the lives of people, particularly those who are facing greater barriers to health, that there is no greater source of satisfaction and joy. And, and I don't mean this in a way to sound in any way superior or to, or to be critical of anyone else's perspective. To me, that just felt self-evident. And I'm not sure that I, I, I quite know where that came from. I, I do remember a moment in high school where we were doing some work with a, a synagogue temple youth group to raise money for people in Biafra, which was a, a huge area of starvation that got a lot of attention. And that moment resonated with me, even though I'm not quite sure I, I could have told you much about the world circumstances. I knew that there was something very important about that work. So, and then a second thing that really mattered to me was my own relationship with my physician, uh, my pediatrician. And again, I kind of knew early on that what motivated me and really felt satisfying were the patient relationships, the human relationships, more so than the science. Uh, I came to Penn, we got married very young, and came to, I came to Penn Medicine, I came to Penn Law School, and I, I had never heard of the field of family medicine, which was called family practice at the time. I had never heard of it. It was a pretty young specialty. And so I really thought I'd be a general pediatrician. I did lots of rotations at CHOP when I was at school. And one of my classmates, Patty Montgomery, who I maybe I'll see at our 45th reunion that's coming up, literally said to me one day, he said, you know, Rich, I think there's a field you'd like. So what's that? It was family practice. So what, what's family practice? 
It's just like being a pediatrician, but you do it for the whole family. And I go, oh, okay, that's what I'll do. And, and I'm not kidding. I, I decided at that moment that without ever having done a rotation, not really knowing a lot of details, that that was what I wanted to do. And I think the next really pivotal moment for me was actually in medical school. Up until that point, it was all about community. I actually, during the, the, the suburbs, worked with the very small community medicine group at Penn. But when I started to do medicine and learn some of the details, once I was really involved in patient care, as opposed to just the basic sciences, and I saw the importance of understanding the medical part of care, I found myself able to remember things I never could remember, understand things I never could understand. And I just realized I needed that patient context for it to be meaningful for me. So that's really what launched me on my journey, you know, because I, I, I literally decided this is what's right for me. I'm going to be a family doc and was fortunate that Tom, although Penn did not have a department or a residency then, that Thomas Jefferson here in Philadelphia did and spent most of my career there before moving on to other things. I think everything that you said really resonates with me in the sense of the patient-physician relationship is such a beautiful thing. When someone is that trusting and vulnerable with you, yeah. upholding that trust is very important. And during my preclinicals, like the first year and a half, I, I didn't really like it too much just because, you know, I, I just felt like I was in college again. I didn't like, I liked the patient care aspect of medicine. I wanted to use the information that I was learning to actually make a difference in someone's life. In the past two months, like I have probably been working much more than uh, my first year and a half, but it's so fulfilling because you can directly see like all the knowledge that you've gained puts you in a position where you can provide help to another individual and they trust you on your clinical judgment. And it's just beautiful that you're in a position to be able to help someone with the skills that you've gained uh, throughout life. So, yeah, it's very well said. And, and I suspect that every physician feels that within their own field. They said, you know, I have developed these unique set of skills and I can bring that to affect people's lives in a very profound way. But I do tell people who are thinking about field careers in primary care that if you're going to enjoy a field in primary care, which more and more now is, is family medicine for adult care, first and foremost, you have to derive deep satisfaction from building these trusting patient relationships, just as you described. That, that is the ultimate source of the joy. And, and, and everything is built around that because, you, you know, with that trust comes a great deal of responsibility to really make sure that you're acting in the best interest of patients. And that's where everything, it, it's a scaffolding. You know, you build the scaffold of knowledge and skills and experience on this centerpiece this, of patient relationships and trust. Yeah. And one thing, one aspect of that trust building is, you know, providing recommendations for treatment plans or getting patients to follow a certain prescription of not just like medications, but lifestyle modifications to help their specific condition. And, you know, like, you could oversimplify it and just say the patient is not adherent. They like are not following the treatment plan. But I think asking why is very important and understanding the circumstances and context around why they're not able to adhere to certain treatment plans is very important. And so I was wondering, how do you motivate patients to adopt healthy behaviors and adhere to treatment plans, given the context of their unique biopsychosocial complex backdrop? You know, Sai, you, you, your, your answer, your question contained a big part of the response. And for many years, I, when I'm teaching students and residents and think about it myself, I said the, the, the strongest predictor of someone's likelihood of adhering to whatever you recommend is how difficult the request is, how difficult the task is. So if, if it's a task of taking one pill once a day and it's someone who has insurance, has social support, has relative order in their life, has a place to keep the medicines. It's a pretty low bar. And, and again, assuming that the trust was there that they, you know, and they understood why, which I'll touch on in a moment, adherence can be very high. It, it was a pretty low bar for adherence for that patient. I do include, you know, there's lots of studies. I'm going to come back to this issue of how difficult the request is in a moment. But there are lots of studies showing that patients who are being treated for conditions, when they, you ask them, why are you taking that? What, what's the purpose of that? It's amazing how many people actually don't know. I'll give you a great example. You know, one of probably the most common chronic condition we treat in, in primary care is hypertension. So people know that the 
goal of treating blood pressure is to lower their blood pressure. But you'd be amazed at how few know why it's important to lower their blood pressure, that what it's really about is reducing their risk of a stroke, and people don't want to have strokes, reducing their risk of heart attack, protecting their kidneys, maybe affecting the risk of Alzheimer's disease. So it's important that we include that knowledge piece, because I, I do think that it is part of the trust and part of motivation. But I want to go back to this, you know, what sounds like a simple example, one pill once a day. But now imagine at the other extreme, someone is unsheltered, moving from place to place to live, even if they're not living on the street itself, facing financial challenges, difficult, you know, dealing with what we call food insecurity, meaning they don't have enough to eat. They don't know where they're going to get it from. Don't have an easy place to regularly store that one pill, particularly if there's any out-of-pocket expense can be seen as an enormous barrier. So even the simplest of adherence task, one pill once a day, can become a lot more difficult. And of course, if trust and understanding of why they're doing it is not included, then the, the, the reason to even prioritize that one pill once a day compared to all the other challenges they're facing in life may, may seem remarkably unimportant compared to those other priorities. Now, if you move, as you make that adherence request more and more difficult, we think you need a colonoscopy. Well, that's a full day of prep. There may be out-of-pocket expense. You need a ride in. You need to get that the test done. They have someone pick you up, take you home. I mean, that's so much more difficult. So many other aspects. And now if you make it even more complex, multiple medications, adherence to a physical therapy program, coming in for repeated tests, out-of-pocket co-pays. And we should not be shocked that for many, many individuals in the United States, adherence becomes extremely difficult. And, and again, people facing day-to-day -day life challenges, it may not even feel like a priority. Even if they understand the knowledge of why, it may still pale compared to the meeting day-to-day -day needs. So I try to be really extraordinarily aware of and sensitive to what people are really facing. And even as I say that, I probably made it sound too good. I am positive that I do a better job, you know, sometimes it's like depending, probably depending on how well I know the patient than I do with others. So, I mean, never really appreciate everything they're facing. They may have opted not to share it all. So in family medicine and in our department and people who practice primary care, there's a non-judgmental non approach to this issue of adherence. We don't blame patients for the choices that they sometimes need to make about, about the extent to which they do or do not adhere to our recommendations. And if you throw in aspects like addiction, which uh, again, people may recognize that addiction is profoundly affecting their lives, but asking people to get off whatever that addicting substance is, is a, a tall ask without a lot of support. So uh, not sure I'd fully answer the question. I, I, I think nothing ever departs from, from this issue of trust, relationship, maintenance. Don't, don't do something that threatens that relationship because the patient who isn't able or ready to adhere to something important today, maybe next year or maybe the year after. We see that with tobacco use all the time. But you know, there comes a point that something happens in people's lives and after smoking for many years, they become motivated to try to quit. So this maintenance of that relationship, not doing anything, prioritizing that relationship and trust, not threatening it, non-judgmental, recognizing that it's the patient's life and, and their ability to hear. It's, it's not a, a statement about us. So we, we've tried to really view that in students and residents, try to live that every day. And I think over the years, I've gotten pretty good about that. You know, I, I, I feel like I I'm able to, to, to stick with patients. Uh, one of the tough ones that, that we talked about recently is the spread of vaccine reluctance. And, you know, was always has been there, this kind of an, an anti-vaccine sentiment has, sentiment has been in the nation and around the world, quite prominent in the U.S. COVID vaccine absolutely worsened it. But now we, you know, as we see parents who maybe previously would have opted to have their child be fully vaccinated, now opting not to, it's again, tempting to say, oh, but it, you know, you're hurting your child. But I don't think that's the road to, to helping that, that child get 
the vaccines they need. Again, it's so much more important to establish trust, stick with the parents, meet them where, where their attitudes are. And over time, sometimes attitudes change. You definitely answered the question. And I think one thing I was thinking about while you were talking was just how grateful I feel to be in good health, but not just that it's like, if I, so if something does come up, like I have access to the resources or uh, avenues to be able to access treatment for yeah. to go through. But for a lot of people, like in their daily lived experience, they have to go through so many hurdles just to take care of their health. And it gets very difficult. And with uh, everything you said, it almost feels like an insurmountable uphill battle that they feel like they could not get to a better place in terms of their health. And I feel like that would feel very demoralizing if uh, if someone is going through that. And I was wondering, how do you help them stay motivated and find the ability to progress in their treatment plan, even when it becomes very difficult uh, to see like the progress or to see the uphill battle that they have to go through? Yeah, it's a, it's a really critical question. I think it's at the heart of a lot of healthcare around the world, certainly dramatically evident in the United States with very broad disparities principally based on wealth and educational achievement, but also on factors like what we call race, nationality, rurality, you know, where people live. And the best option, chance for success is to, again, try to maintain that sustained trusting relationship, prioritize access. How can the patient actually communicate with their healthcare team? How are they actually going to get healthcare? And I'll, I'll revisit that in a moment. And then doing everything possible through our screening for so-called social determinants of health screening, or just through your regular communication, all those tools together to try to have some appreciation of what is a priority for the patient. For the patient. You know, we have a priority that that blood pressure of 160 over 110, oh my God, you know that we've got to get that down. Their priority may be to make sure that they have a secure place to live, that they get out of a stressful job and find a new one. The, you know, this is a, a macro kind of answer to your question, but it always stuck in my mind. My colleagues at Duke, who've done a wonderful job with community health or wanted to do some really good work with the community. So they, you know, they had all sorts of, oh, we're going to do cancer training and blood pressure and diabetes care. But they actually asked the members of the community, you know, in the, where they live, what's your priority? The number one priority identified was dental care. So in order to establish trust, the Department of Family Medicine Community Health, it's not quite the right name at Duke, but something similar to that, went out and got a, a grant for a dental van. And they addressed what the community identified as the need. So that's on the community level, but we have to do the same thing on the individual level. You know, what, what are people motivated, ready to do? And frankly, that carries over to almost every clinical decision we have. You know, with a patient with back pain, Let's get a sense of what what resonates with you. What 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 options make sense to you, and try to match up our evidence with what the patient is receptive to doing. And I feel like with the broad range of patients that you see as well, even when treatment plans are adhered to, and we have a very systematic way of uh, treating certain conditions, some get better, but others don't. And I think that's just the reality of aging and just different aspects of uh, healthcare that are still lacking, I guess, in the current way they are in, in our ability to not be able to help everybody, even, even though we have these various uh, medications or treatments in place. And so I was wondering from your perspective, like even when things don't go the way as planned or people just don't get better, uh, how do you stay motivated and find meaning in, in your day-to-day -day work? I've never had any difficulty finding meaning in my day-to-day -day work. So, you know, you know, the question in a way forces me to ask, you know, why not? You know, why don't I get discouraged? But, but I think I'm not unusual. I, I don't see many of my colleagues who are discouraged because some patients don't improve. I don't mean to say there aren't clinicians who've experienced that or experience it now and then, but I think we all appreciate that there's factors that we cannot influence. That's number one. Number two, we've made a lot of progress and we are helping a lot of people and we're seeing it, you know, with, with reductions in cardiovascular disease, reductions in, in cancer mortality, improvements in, in the treatment of almost every chronic condition. Probably the hardest patients that to treat are those with 
chronic pain, chronic disability, where our options really are pretty limited nowadays. And hanging in there with people, exploring every option we can, leading with compassion and love matters a lot. Yeah, you know, years ago I I was taught, you know, when you're seeing your some what we would call patients who feel difficult for you. I don't like that term, quote, difficult patients. They're patients that you're struggling with. They feel difficult for you, but they're returning for visits. And you say, well, I'm not doing anything. You know, nothing's improving. They don't, but they keep returning for visits. And we always, you know, I had to learn myself and teach others, you're making a difference. You know, you're, you are that human connection that that matters to them. And it may be just the human connection. It may be that's what they most desperately need more than what you think are the priorities for their health. So uh, I love, frankly, I, I, I kind of really enjoy the hanging in there with, with pe- people who are struggling and recognizing that the decisions and the, the actions that a person is able to take today may look really different in a year or two years or three years. Finding the right level of support I think that's really at the crux of people who want to practice family medicine and primary care. They actually take joy out of those folks who are who keep coming back, but it's hard to find the right ave- avenue. I think it's going to be challenging for learners because they're just not sure what action to take next. But once you develop that confidence to just hang in there with people, keep thinking of a different pathway, I think those are the those are the the stories we tell. I'll. I'll and the, the answer with this true fact, when you ask the family doc, tell us about your stories, tell us your stories, and they'll think about patients. They never think of the, the, this straightforward patient who I prescribed medicine, their A1C got to goal, their blood pressure was terrific, and they lived a long time. They will tell the stories of patients who are facing lots of barriers, who, who you know, had emotional issues, were dealing with depression, anxiety, may have had traumatic you and they'll be, they'll begin this way. You know, I've taken care of that patient for thirty years. So why do they start with that? They start with that because that alone is a vital outcome, and tells you how important this doctor-patient relationship is. It's interesting that you bring that up because I've been fortunate enough to see just my interaction with another patient just make them feel a little bit better, or just having a pleasant conversation, like. It's, it almost feels selfish at times because I feel good from a yeah. patient interaction and I don't get the same sense of fulfillment if, uh, I don't know, I get something materialistic or yeah. something, that, you know, and I never, like, why do you think that is? It's, I think, I don't know if it's like an evolutionary mechanism built into humans of like altruism or just not having, seeking an external reward and just providing service to another individual provides fulfillment. But I was just wondering, why do you think that is? Oh boy, that's a, the the why is tough. I I know that that we that 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 the this human relationship is extraordinarily powerful, and people who aren't able to derive to develop warm relationships, lasting relationships, and who are isolated, that's probably the more the, the more difficult group to understand or to really appreciate the the, the roots of the. Um, even then, I think there's some, you know, the right relationship matters for that for that person. I always used to tell when you were talking, it resonated what I used to tell interns back when I was a residency director in a much earlier point in my career, but I did that for a lot of years. And and I would say, you know, internship, the one really cool thing about internship is that you're often the, the doc that the patients know the best. You're in the room most frequently. Sometimes when you're doing the senior student, you're assigned to a patient, you're the one. And at least in the old days, not sure we still do this. I don't know around the hospital now, you know, you come in with a group of people and you'd watch the patient's eyes and they would find the intern and they'd say, ah, there's, there's my friend. There's my, there is no way to underestimate this power of, of relationship. That is part of healing. And, and, and when you, again, ask patients what went wrong in an encounter, they will not cite, well, the advice I got was wrong. I didn't, but no, they'll say the, you know, the, the clinician was too fast. The clinician didn't connect with me. I mean, they'll always comment on that aspect of it. So I don't think there, I don't think it's possible to underestimate how powerful that is. And, and another thing I was wondering about was just in terms of the role of the family physician within the community, I feel like 
family medicine physicians are the first line for patients. They're, they're the ones that patients come to for anything that's going on in their life to talk about. And in terms of disparities within access for different patients or who is able to come and talk to you about any problems that they're going through, what role do you think family physicians play in the community as a whole? The role of primary care physicians, family physicians, family nurse practitioners, general interns, general pediatricians, family physicians, assistants, those practicing comprehensive primary care is foundational. There was a report of the National Academies recently about primary care, said primary care is, is a public good and it's a public right. It is the only specialty associated with better health outcomes, life, extended life expectancy at lower cost. And you and I have already touched on some of the reasons why that is so critical. And I always use the phrase access to a trusted source of primary care is probably the single most effective healthcare intervention. Now, I, I said healthcare intervention. If you could relieve poverty, if you could help people have access to better schools, they healthier communities to live in, improve their education, level of educational achievement, those factors, again, on the population basis are more strongly associated with health outcomes than anything else. If you look at the health and life expectancy of college graduates, for example, compared to people who never completed high school, those are enormous gaps. But within any one of those groups, no matter which group you're in, access to a trust insurance of private care, that's actually where I start. When you, when you want to improve community health, from a healthcare perspective, start with access to primary care. And, and it's one of the things we're working on in the department. We've, we've really put high priority on how could we ensure that everybody in West Philadelphia has access to a trusted source of primary care. Not everyone will take advantage of it, but the, the more effective we are in providing really convenient access and affordable access, the higher the number of people who will take advantage of it. And as an extension to that, another aspect of healthcare I find interesting is preventative healthcare. You know, implementing certain habits, lifestyle choices, or modifications that make you an, a healthier individual so that, you know, we don't have to treat you when the blood pressure is high or your A1Cs are high or whatever systemic issues are going on as a result of chronic factors that, that have gotten you there. And one thing I do is in terms of like helping my preventative health is meditating. Um, uh, fasting helps me. I don't know if that's like a scientifically proven thing that everyone should do, but just in terms of my mental health and nourishing my body and soul, I, I have certain practices in place to, in order to do that. And I was wondering, as an extension to your role as a family physician in the community, what exact processes do you think are important uh, that entail that preventative healthcare component in order to educate patients, but also community members and uh, leading healthier uh, lives? Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful question. I began by saying that when I'm talking to students and they're considering what to do in their career, I say, well, the first, the greatest source of joy uh, in being a family physician, a primary care physician is finding those doctor-patient relationships, clinician-patient relationships, really enriching. That's the ultimate source of satisfaction. Number two, however, if you look at the people who, wa who want to do primary care, is they really value preventive care. That is such a, a crucial part of primary care. And it's, it's a part that's very dependent on access to primary care and to clinical care. People just, if you don't have access to primary care, it's pretty darn tough to get a vaccination. You know, I mean, it's gotten easier because you can go to the pharmacies now, but, you know, those tend to be confined to a certain set number of vaccines. So, you know, people are getting all of their pediatric vaccines, adolescent vaccines at, at pharmacies. Cancer screening, you know, it is, if you don't have access to primary care, it's hard to know what cancer screening tests you need, when you need them, how you're supposed to access them. A lot of them need an order by a physician to be done. Blood pressure, almost impossible to self-manage that, you know, getting your diabetes to go. So with this bridge between what we call chronic disease management and preventive care, I mean, it's a continuum. A lot of chronic disease management is really prevention, delaying the, the, the long-term outcomes. Let's talk, though, specifically about the components of lifestyle. And, and that's where, where you started. 
And I will tell you, there's a really a range of clinicians in their ability to help people, help their patients make meaningful, sustained change in lifestyle. Some are really good at it. Some, and a lot of us are okay at it. Part of it is time limitation. You know, it, it's, it does take time for, to really work with people to use really good motivational interviewing techniques to help them assess their own inner drive and, and what's standing in the way of their making meaningful change. Where, where clinicians can be really helpful is breaking down some of the cognitive barriers. You know, people who have rationalized some of their health choices to feel that it's it not affecting their health risks in a way that they are. So done with love and caring, we can be wonderful sources of information and either through our own interventions or working with team members, if they're available to us, help patients get access to motivational interviewing, to assess goals, to see if they're interested in seeing a, another professional like a dietitian, uh, to look at dietary issues, what's available in terms of joining safe places to exercise like community wise, which have done a great job in many, many communities. Begins obviously with you know what is that patient facing, just as we talked about at the start, and where their readiness is to make meaningful change. We also do help people prioritize. You know, I, I've seen people not infrequently say, "Um, you know, help me. I exercise. I eat pretty good, so I'm not too worried about my ten cigarettes a day." Because you know, I, and, and helping people understand that it's not a sum. You know, you don't you don't add those two together. The healthy living in one area doesn't cancel out the adverse risks associated with the smoking. For some people, it can be motivating. Probably most important of all is what I said earlier. It's not a one-and-done intervention. You stick with people, never judge what they're able or not able to do. Try to look for different options to help people make change. Use your team members whenever you can and stick with the person over a long period of time. And I, I'm also interested in seeing healthcare as an entity from like a systems-based perspective and seeing how various systems interact with each other, but also impact patient care at the end. And there are many larger systems at play that cause these disparities in quality of care that someone can access or, you know, person's life in terms of poverty or uh, discrimination or lack of resources and how that manifests in different ways. It's interesting because I think not everyone has a level playing field in terms of access to health. And it's, it's very ironic because you would think that everyone deserves health care, right? If they are feeling not so great, we should provide systems or access uh, in a way that that is a, a property that everyone has access to in, in a similar way. But that's not really how it works right now. And I was just wondering from your perspective, from like a systemic level, how do you think we can address a lot of these inefficiencies to provide better health care for all? Well, there's a simple question. Just, let's just solve the, the, all of the inefficiencies and, and, and sources of inequity in the U.S. healthcare system. It, but it's, it is the critical question. And it, 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 frankly, that is the question that in this later phase of my career, I'm spending much more time thinking about and addressing. You know, after I left Jefferson, I spent six and a half years as the chief cancer control officer at the American Cancer Society. It was a national global job. And we had a huge initiatives about community health and about policy changes that matter. One of the huge initiatives that we pursued and are still pursuing at the American Cancer Society was promoting Medicaid expansion in the states that did not had not expanded Medicaid following the passage of the Affordable Care Act. That's a proven strategy that improves access and cancer outcomes and the outcomes for many other illnesses. Having said that, our failure to provide anything approaching equal access is a, you know, a systems failure, a political failure, a policy failure, and it's a failure for all of us, honestly. You know, it's, it's, we saw a huge drop in the number of uninsured following the passage of the Affordable Care Act. We're now back up to over 30 million uninsured in the United States. And when you talk about access, if you don't have health insurance, it's a fantasy to think that there's anything approaching equal access. One of the other ironies that, that uh, I do some big talks about and have 
you know, including a talk I just did with students a week or so ago. I'm not sure people understand that one of the major sources of disparity has been progress. In 1988, there were no cancer disparities in the United States based on wealth. The poorest and the richest, subpopulations, quintiles of wealth, all had the same cancer mortality, which shocks people that we actually had eliminated cancer disparities. The problem was we had done it in the wrong direction. All five groups, all quintiles, had high mortality from cancer. And then it crossed. The wealthy people started to, quintiles started to see a big drop in their cancer mortality. And the thing that drove that was the advent of cancer screening, mammography, colon cancer screening, wider pap smear access. Immediately, within a few years, we started to see a drop in people with higher wealth, which associates with higher educational achievement. And for the next 15 years in the poorest group, mortality continued to go up. Now we're seeing a drop in all those groups. Look at all of the incredible advances in cancer care, cardiovascular care, neurologic care that we have today. For every advance, we, we contribute to disparities because they're available for some people, but they are not available for the majority of people. So it, it is a true irony that you know, we don't think about, well, it's actually the advances in healthcare that drive disparities. We need to embrace that, not, not look past it, and recognize that if we're serious about disparity reduction, I'm not suggesting that we stop progress. I think we've got to have medicine keep moving forward. At the same time, we need to try to come together. That's a big word, try to come together, to uh, recognize that it's in our nation's best interest, in our community's best interest, our family's best interest, individual's best interest, to find solutions that expand access to healthcare, even if it's not the latest, most effective treatment, that it's access to good basic treatment, which achieves a lot of the progress associated with more advanced treatment. So what will it take to get there? That's a tough road right now because we don't have, you know, everybody understands that we're living in a very politically disparate world right now with people having very different worldviews and very different uh, views of what it, it takes to achieve health. I actually think that the time will come sometime in the next 10 to 15 years, if we can survive this period of, of real divide, that a commitment to each other will prevail, will prevail, and that we will see policies that prioritize public good. I think one recent trend is uh, kind of the slow but certain resurgence of unions uh, in America. We saw what the auto workers were able to achieve is a good start. Part of what these recent disparities also reflect is 30 plus years of increasing wealth disparity. So for 1940 to 79, the disparities in wealth narrowed from 1979 until today, they've dramatically widened. So all of these things go together. It's healthcare insurance, it's access to wealth, it's reduction in poverty. They will demand policy solutions. I believe that, that it will never be the, the unanimous view that we need to take those kind of actions as a nation to prioritize benefiting everybody. But I do believe that we will reach a tipping point where that becomes the prevailing sentiment. And throughout your career, I'm sure you've seen uh, healthcare change a lot, and you probably understand a lot better than how you know someone like me at the very initial stages of healthcare do about about that change in healthcare and the progression of healthcare. How do you approach uh, being a leader as well with your given your career? Uh, you know, leading multiple departments and leading large organizations in terms of approaching healthcare uh, given all these uh, intricacies? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I have, I have kind of a, almost a, a split view of it because as much as I've seen change in healthcare, I've seen a lot that hasn't changed. I still see unequal access. I still see poverty, racism, unequal access to schools, the, what we group under the social determinants of health as being the principal determinants of how well a patient is able to access healthcare and adhere to, to what will improve their health. That hasn't changed much. The, the second thing that hasn't changed is the doctor-patient, the clinician-patient relationship. The, that feels to me just like it did 40 years ago. Fundamental, critical. There's a bit more inherent distrust. You may have to 
work a little harder, use different strategies to earn that trust. I still see some very negative things that haven't changed, like the the makeup of the of the healthcare workforce still does not reflect the makeup of the communities we're serving. And we know how important that is to increasing trust. So a lot has remained the same. A lot has changed. And the biggest change where I alluded to earlier, one of the biggest changes was these dramatic improvements in how to treat these complex illnesses associated with aging, not exclusively with aging, but a lot of them associated with aging. And incredible. You know, I, I look at Jimmy Carter with metastatic melanoma to the brain diagnosed how many years ago now? Seven, eight, nine years ago. I mean, in medical school, that was a few month prognosis when I was in school. And now he's alive many years later with a very well-tolerated treatment at a very advanced age. So we're seeing these incredibly new tools. So that has increased, as I alluded to earlier, a source of disparities in outcome because of the expense of these items and solving expenses and other serious issue. They, they need to be more affordable, but understand we're not going to solve that immediately. But I want to end with what I have seen a change in that worries me. And we are seeing more and more articles about this. And that is this shift to how all of us in healthcare strike a healthy balance with our work. And it, and there's so many trends that have contributed to this. I think the the corporatization of healthcare and now the true financialization of healthcare is one of my colleagues written about recently in the New England Journal where we see private equity firms, you know, making a profit and, and worrying about shell profit through healthcare provision. I mean, it's stunning. And 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 the you know the viewing by by big entities of those of us doing healthcare as more cogs in a machine, as opposed to that fundamental element of what promotes a healing world. And not surprisingly, you know, people have changed their relationship with being a physician. And, and there was a fascinating article in the New England Journal just last week about no longer viewing it as a calling and, and, uh, and arguing that, you know, why should they view somebody view it as a calling? There should be a balance with work and, and there should be other sources of meaning in your life. These are all really serious issues. And I really support the balance. I understand it. And I'm helping, trying to help people in my own department achieve that balance. I don't want it to tip so far, though, that we really lose the sense of joy that we have from, from being able to, to, to make a difference for everybody. And, and my very final, yeah, let me stop there. You asked another component. What do I do as a leader? So, you know, to try to make a difference. So one is I educate myself. I read a lot about the sources of poverty and racism and mass incarceration. And there was a, you know, a wonderful book by two economists who are not liberal socialist healthcare people. These were American economists called Deaths of Despair looking at the rise of deaths in opioids, alcohol, and suicide, pointing to the cost of the healthcare system, just it's so expensive that it's priced out the United States from being able to address social needs and other prioritized priorities. So I educate myself, number one. Number two, I try to be a, a, a constant voice. I've opted to lead from within. You know, I've been within the healthcare system. I've tried to learn how to lead effectively. And if you just you know, or a constant voice of, we need to change, we need to do things differently, we need to prioritize other things without bringing others along, that's not a good way to lead from within. It might be a really good way to, to lead from outside. You know, it's, it's some of our biggest national changes have been through protest and political movement, but I'm a leader from the inside. So I really try to be a voice for communities, a voice for primary care within a very big system and try to be constant about that. I do think about courage, just the way we have to earn trust with our patients. We have to earn trust with our colleagues and with, with the people I report to. So I'm really respectful. I really try to listen. I try to build that trust, do my best to. But then I also try not to be uncourageous when, when courageous and tough things need to be said about how we prioritize our work. And for someone like me, what advice do you 
have for aspiring leaders in the medical field as we look into the future of how healthcare is going to uh, evolve and change with time? Yeah, I appreciate your asking that. So on a very, you know, if you look on the spectrum of leadership attributes, and, and I actually have gone to some, lots of leadership, you know, retreats and sessions and trainings over the years, and I always grade very high on one end. I'm a relationship-driven leader, and I must admit, I, I'm a pretty strong believer that those relationships remain the key to leadership. So work on relationships, you know, not just with patients, but with your, with your colleagues and how you treat each other, how you, you're treated respectfully. When you have an opportunity to be courageous, even as a student, be courageous, respect others. Not sure how we're interacting on social media, you know, has really promoting respect for others. So I do worry about the effects of social media, but I do believe that, that building relationships and everything you're doing and practicing relationships, not just with patients, but with colleagues and Teachers is really vital, and 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 being courageous enough to call out when you're not seeing that among your educators. Number two, do just what I do: educate yourself. You know, include some pleasure reading, some pleasure fun, but find a couple good books about our nation and why we have such economic divide. What role has race played in that? Why do we have so much poverty? I'm reading a book now called Poverty by America very revealing about why we have so much poverty and the choices, the very conscious choices we've made that are maintaining that. So educate yourself. And number three, whatever field you go into, and we do need more people going into family medicine and primary care. It's so rewarding and so enriching and we desperately need it. But whatever field you go into, you will have the opportunity to decide to what extent am I going to make sure that my skills are available to everyone in the community, whether I'm a, no matter what specialty you're in, you have choices to make about who employs you, how insistent you are that you accept as many insurance types as possible, how you do unique things to provide access even to uninsured, as some of our surgical colleagues have done so beautifully at Penn. So those are the three things I'd recommend. You know, I always tell students, they're always worried about their knowledge. Oh my God, you know, I, I can't remember all these things. And I, I always tell students that it is so rare that knowledge becomes the limitation of what kind of doctor you become. The, the medical educational system is built to make sure that you acquire the knowledge. And you do it by repetition and by practice and by an amazing set of residency programs and fellowship programs. It's not knowledge. Uh, caring must come first, and it's caring that ultimately determines what kind of clinician you, you, you are. Even if it's extremely uh, procedurally based, it's that deep concern for the family and for the patient that motivates you and drives you to make sure that you're just meticulous in how you go about your care. So prioritize caring. I kind of wanted to be a doctor like most of my life. And like, I didn't really think about doing anything else. But when I told my dad about that, like one thing he said, it's like really focus on was like just being like a good person that can like yeah. speak with people because, you know, we're from India in India, like he just talks about like how when you speak with a doctor, right, for, for someone to be a good doctor in India, and I guess it's everywhere, but from his perspective, it's, it's not about like what you know or the knowledge that you can like spew out to the patient or whatever, but it's like half, he's like half the disease is cured when uh, he's just, you're just able to speak with the doctor and they give you that reassurance. Yeah. I don't know if scientifically how true that is, but I think the point he's trying to make, he was trying to make was that having that connection, that meaningful relationship is very important. You know, it's a good question about how scientific the power of relationships of caring, of love, of human connection is. There's plenty of research that supports its value, but I rely also on our experiences. And there's not a single one of us who doesn't derive our ultimate joys from this human relationship. You described it yourself just very early in your clinical training, you know, what were my favorite moments? It's those moments just quoting you back to you. You say, almost felt selfish. I, I took so much pleasure out of having this relationship. You're not unique, Sai. I mean, that, that those moments are uh, what sustains us. And it's, it's absolutely vital that we don't get so embedded in an EMR and virtual visits and my pen medicine messages and the corporatization and the economics that that we lose that we, we've got to stay 
adhering to each other as a team. And we have to make sure that we, whatever we need to do to, to maintain the human element in the care that we provide is fundamental. And to conclude the episode, Dr. Wonder, what are you most excited about the future? It's a good question because I worry a lot about the future. So, uh, the, uh, but I'll tell you what excites me the most. I maybe it's subtle for some, but, but I really believe it. I think even though we're, we're struggling with, you know, as a nation right now with, with how much we're, you know, going to do things that feel like socialism to some people, you know, economic policies that, that help poorer people and, you know, as opposed to keeping government out of our lives. I really believe that the, the, the pushback on some of those is because there really is some movement to saying for us to survive as, as a community, as a city, we need to embrace the welfare of everyone. And I meet so many young people and students, residents, undergraduate students who are feeling it. They, they do want to figure out how we can make a difference. Look how far we've come in just 10 years in understanding this term social determinant. We were not talking about the social determinants of health 30 years ago, 40 years ago, even though we knew that they were important. But we've recognized that that those are the foundational elements of healthcare. So it's so demoralizing to look at things like the disparities during COVID, to look at the opioid epidemic, to look at the sustained disparities in low-income communities, which we haven't made a lot of impact in. But I, I, I am more optimistic that we are looking and we are approaching these problems with compassion. So that's what I'm most excited about. I, I believe there is a an appreciation that we're just not going to make the kind of impact we want in healthcare if we don't figure this out. And I'm consciously optimistic, cautiously, that we will also understand that it is the one of the biggest barriers to doing this work is how expensive healthcare has become. And that will take really difficult decisions and solutions. But I do sense that we've buried our head in the sand about the expense of healthcare. And our head is still kind of in the sand, but it's starting to come out. We've just got to look at it square in the eye. We do need to get a handle on how expensive it is to provide healthcare. We've seen a little bit of progress in the current administration with negotiating Medicare drug pricing for 10 drugs to start with, a little bit of change. But why did that change occur? Because people are understanding it's disparate, you know, progress in medicine is wonderful, but if it's available to a tiny fraction of the people, that's just not the kind of society we want. So cautious optimism that we're recognizing the need to tackle this very big problem. Well, Dr. Wonder, you have a lot to think about, and I will keep it in mind as I approach my family medicine rotation. Thank you so much for coming on the Stripe Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.